Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Neon the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history behind it. I'm Jem Daducci, and this time round, we're talking about Echoes. Now, I am pretty sure you don't know what Echoes is, so how can it be a piece of pop culture? But we will come to that a little bit later on, because it's a book, and therefore I think it's the perfect opportunity to take you back to the beginning of, quite frankly, not only history, but writing. We're going to take you through a journey about how human beings have stored information over the millennia, taking you all the way up to the modern world of publishing and what's good about it and bad about it as well. And then I'm going to introduce to you Echoes. This will all make sense to you by the time we finish this podcast. But believe me, that even if you've never heard of Echoes, I guarantee this is going to be an interesting ride that's going to take you across continents and thousands of years of history. You can continue the conversation with us. We're at Neon Podcast on Twitter, Neon Podcast on Facebook. You can download this not only on whatever app you're listening to, and be it Podbean or the podcast app on Apple, but do you know what? We're on Spotify now as well. We really have diversified. There's almost an infinite number of ways you can listen to us. Please, if you like this, give us a five-star review. It all helps to spread the word. If you can click to subscribe and download, that's great too. The other things that you can also do is you can go to patreon.com forward slash neon podcast. And if you want to support us that way, that would be great. Right, let's get into it. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? So exactly who invented writing is a little bit debated nowadays. There does seem to be some scratchings on some bones in China that predates everything. However, that did not evolve into a written system until after you get the formal writing system of ancient Babylon. And so they really did come up with it first. But uh, to be honest, people have been scratching symbols onto bones, stone, cave walls, etc. for millennia before that. But there can be very little argument that the Babylonians came up with an actual 
alphabet written system, a way to store information. And the way they actually stored it, and this is what we're going to be talking a little bit about on this podcast, is they decided to go with clay tablets. And really, they pushed sharpened little sticks into the clay to create these little indentations. And that's what they decided to use. Obviously, not very mobile. You could carry a couple of these clay tablets along with you, but their design was clearly to be largely in situ. And obviously, in the hot Iraqi summers, uh, that clay would harden. But what's actually saved a lot of these tablets for all of posterity is the fact that a number of buildings clearly burnt down and these clay tablets were ultimately baked accidentally into bricks and therefore they've lasted thousands of years. So it was a bit by accident that we got so many of them. But what did they first write about? When humanity first had the opportunity to write down sentences of information rather than just sort of random little one-off scribbles or icons, what did they decide to write about, I hear you ask. And the fascinating thing is, it's all about grain production, silos. It's, if you like, the very first world Excel spreadsheet, which is showing you information about storage. Because it is worth remembering that an awful lot of stories across civilizations and over the millennia, a lot of stories have been told orally. You would want them to be performed as some kind of poem, maybe, or if you like, a a song that would last a whole evening of feasting. And so it's little surprise that that isn't the first thing that's written down. And instead, if you are ruling a, a, a complex city like ancient Babylon, you needed to know, are we going to starve? Do we need to buy more wheat to keep the population going? How are the bread stocks going? So unsurprising that if you like the boring information, the stuff that you really did need lists of, was the first thing that was written down. But the Babylonians get there first in terms of the oldest extant, in other words, still existing, story as well. That's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And to give you an idea, the the very first writing is just shy of 5,000 years old. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is closer to about 4,400 years old. So there seems to have been a few centuries, at least, of times when writing wasn't really used for telling of stories and storing information that's more interesting, if you like, than just grain silos and all that stuff. However, by the time we get to the Epic of Gilgamesh, we've got ancient Egypt with its own completely separate writing system as well. And by now, clearly we get inscriptions in stone, which is something we still do to this day, after all. But it's the Egyptians that first come up with truly portable writing. And you all learnt this at primary school. They, of course, created papyrus. Papyrus is like a, a reed that, funnily enough, in the Nile, There's going to be quite a lot of reeds lying around. So it's basically smooshed up plant matter that's carefully layered over each other. And again, baking hot sun of Egypt dried out, say the moisture relieves, and you've got a sheet of something that you can actually write on. Jim says loosely. We are, of course, talking about sort of like painting it onto it. 
I'm deliberately not using the, the paper word yet because that doesn't happen. So in these ancient worlds, we've got papyrus. And papyrus was relatively fragile. So what people did is they rolled them up into scrolls, into rolls of information. And that's how a lot of information was carried in the ancient Mediterranean world. It, obviously, papyrus is not heavy, but it's quite bulky. You, you look at a roll. Buy a poster, for example. A poster is a completely flat piece of paper. It might be a large piece of paper. But of course, to get it home, you have to put it into a large tube. Or indeed, if it gets stuck through the post, it's a, quite a bulky thing that you get. And if you can imagine if you wanted pages and pages and pages of papyri papyruses, papyri, I'm not entirely sure what the plural is, actually, uh, then you might need to have a whole load of scrolls. And therefore, that's it's not exactly an easy way to carry a around a lot of information. You know, one sheet of papyrus in a scroll, easy enough. But it was, again, the Chinese that invent paper. But paper doesn't really come to the West until the sort of post-Roman era. You do, however, get a form of paper, which is called vellum, which is basically a calf skin, baby calf skin, which is sort of scraped to be super thin. And it's actually pretty good. But I think you can, can guess that if we're talking about calf skin, that's going to take a lot more expense to create sheets of it than it will. Uh, again, paper is ultimately smashed up plant matter that's sort of compacted together and the moisture is removed. So once paper arrived, it was an awful lot cheaper. The other thing that the Chinese invented was the printing press, around about 900 AD. They, however, created, you'd have a cutout, a sort of printing block, and that was it. So you could reproduce the same page over and over again, but you couldn't keep the same basic format and rearrange the typeface, rearrange the, the letters, or in this case, the pictograms. That would be actually a Western invention. But you then get the invention of the book. Now, the book, I, I've heard some people again sort of say, oh, you know, China got there first. They did tie together a piece of paper. Yes, sort of. It kind of had a spine, but we're, we're only talking about a few pages bound together. And it certainly didn't have that. And this is the really important thing, the hard cover to protect all the fragile internal sheets. Once you have a book, compare it to a roll of papyrus and you can see, wow, that's that's a game changer in terms of being having portable information. You can now have literally dozens, maybe even over a hundred pages of information that can be, all be kept very compact in one easy to move around unit. When books started appearing, that was the information superhighway of the late Roman world. Books are so important that we, that we've actually incorporated it into the English language the Bible. It's kind of a weird word when you think about it. it. It's so ubiquitous that everyone just as soon as I say the Bible, you know exactly exactly what I'm talking about. This is the combined Old and New Testament of the one God. But at no point in the book does it mention Bible. Bible is, is not a word in the Bible. Isn't that a little bit weird? 
And the reason for this, and, and look, I'm not going to get into the actual creation of, you know, what do you, you know, which bits of the Bible were included and whatever. That's that's a podcast for another time. But eventually, once it was decided which various psalms and uh, the message of, of, of Jesus's mission on earth, once it was agreed what they were, they needed to be compiled. And it was compiled in a book. The Bible was not the first book, but it was one of the first uh, mass broadcasting books. And of course, to carry the entire theology of a religion in one book, people don't tend to talk about this so much. Like, well, what, why did Christianity beat the pagan gods? And, you know, if you're Christian, you're saying, well, it's obvious because that's true and the other stuff's made up. I, well, you know, I've got to look at this stuff from the point of view of a historian. You, you know, if you followed Apollo, for example, it would have been followed for centuries. And then these other people turn up and say, no, you're wrong. You're doing it wrong. I mean, that's kind of a hard argument to go against. But trying to pull together the entire theology of the ancient Roman pantheon of gods or ancient Greek pantheon of gods is hard. There's lots of legends, but there's nowhere which stores them all. But that's what the Christians did. Obviously, for all time, they were persecuted. So you need to be pretty mobile and move this stuff around. But the Bible is Tar Biblia, which if you translate it is the book. That's how important the concept of books are, that the single most mass-produced book in history is simply called the book, if you want to translate it into English. So there we go. That's the importance. But of course, I think most of us have seen a copy of the Bible. Couldn't care less right now whether you believe or don't believe, but you've seen one and it's over a thousand pages long. So if you do not have printing, you literally have to have somebody uh, writing it out word for word, day after day. And that's what monks did in the Middle Ages. They would sit there and constantly uh, write this stuff out. So for you to own a copy of the entire Bible, you would have had to have paid a fortune for it. There is no way that the average peasant would ever own a book in the Middle Ages. Also, critically, they were also illiterate, so they couldn't read the book. And also it was in Latin, and so not much use if you're an English peasant who's managed to finally crack reading in English, and then you've got to learn a whole new language. So you can see that the, if you like, the, the secrets of the Bible were sort of very carefully or inadvertently carefully guarded by the, the papacy, by the, the, you know, the powers that be behind Christianity. So what happened was, you know, even if you're a knight, you might be Christian, you might be semi-literate. A, there's no way you're going to be able to sit down and read the entire Bible, but you may also simply not be able to afford one as well. They're also quite big. If you look at medieval manuscripted uh, Bibles, they're they're big, fat books, okay? So you might not be able to carry that. So you get sections of the Bible, particularly popular with the Psalms. You know, these sort of little sayings, these little sort of philosophical thoughts about the interaction between humanity and the divine. And so books of Psalms were quite often very popular subcategories of the Bible. But, you know, you could just buy the gospel according to Luke, for example, or you could, you know, or order a uh, a scripture of or a copy of Deuteronomy, whatever it may be, you will find throughout the Middle Ages bits of the Bible in books as well as the overall book. Then we get Gutenberg in Germany, and it's interesting that you know, he's the one who brought the printing press to, to Europe, and he printed originally on vellum, 
Then he realized it was much cheaper to do it on paper. But the very first Gutenberg Bibles, which was the first printed content in Britain, in Europe, I should say. But also, of course, he went for the Bible. Let's face it, you want to do a bestseller, don't you? Um, and then William Caxton in England uh, shortly after him, just before the Tudor era. And then we get the era of movable type. So all uh, throughout the sort of like the 1500s and 1600s, because of printing, books are getting cheaper. Also, we can start disseminating stuff a lot quicker as well, information. But again, this is all disseminated amongst the universities, the churches, the aristocracy, because the common man could not read in 1500. They just couldn't. And actually, we have to go to mass education. We have to come to the era of industrialization. So we skip forward again to the 1800s. Now, I'm going to be wrong about the first uh, first percentage because I haven't been able to check it up. But I do remember that somebody says, if you look at, uh, at in England, Britain in 1800, OK, in the year 1800, you'd have, I know this to be true, you'd have less than 40% of the population. It sticks in my mind that it pro it's probably closer to 10%, but you might want to check me on that. But certainly less than 40% of the adult population of Britain could read in 1800. When you get to 1899, because it had become law that children, they may not have lasted, you know, till their teen years, but they would have had a basic schooling. By 1899, over 90% of the uh, adult a British population could read. And one of the signs of this was not just great literature. I'm going to come on to some of the big names of literature in a, in a, in a minute. Charles Dickens, J.K. Rowling, R.R. Uh, Martin, Dan Brown. We will come to those names that you know in, in a minute. But what I wanted to point out is the sign that literacy had become so common in the West by the late 19th century is not the signs of the likes of Charles Dickens, but actually the amount of really cheap, lurid books out there. Now, in the Victorian era, they're referred to as penny dreadfuls. These would cost, you know, funnily enough, a penny or two to buy, and it would be a short book of something trashy. It, you know, uh, it, in America, it was hugely popular. The equivalent of the Penny Dreadful in America would invariably be, invariably be Wild West stories. Cowboys fighting Indians. And now I'm using local terms, obviously. I, I know that, you know, we're talking about Native Americans here. But, you know, there are endless and endless amounts of books about that. Uh, yeah, funnily enough, you get something like Jack the Ripper being turned into sort of lurid books of horror and stuff like that. OK. And then, you know, in the 20th century, this sort of like lurid cheap books continued and that's where we get the term pulp fiction from so these were just just easy to produce written with no eye on on the literary world these were if you like the true early best-selling books art wasn't the point sales were now this is where i can start bringing in Charles Dickens, for example, because and where we can start beginning to look at the world of publishing as it is today. Because I hate to break it to you, but your average published writer has a second job. Now, that doesn't happen if you're, let's say, a policeman or a lawyer or an accountant or probably even a barista in Starbucks. 
or maybe the barista in Starbucks is also a writer. But the point is this. It's one of these weird jobs where it really doesn't pay the bills. And we start with Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens uh, had a very poor upbringing and he was a journalist first. And yes, he started to make money from his books. And as we see the rise in literacy rates, Charles Dickens was a big seller of the day, but he wouldn't have compared in, let's say, something like 1855, he wouldn't have compared with the sales of books in 1955, okay? But for the time, big deal. But the interesting thing is even Charles Dickens had to hustle a little bit as well. It's worth remembering that most of his books were serialized in newspapers. So this was so he was paid to keep them going, as it were. Um, and so therefore, eventually, Oliver Twist came out as a book. But first of all, it would have been serialized in something like The Times. But a lot of people know that Charles Dickens went on book tours and there was a very practical money orientated reason for this because and this is sort of sort of gobsmacking by today's standards he went to america on a really popular sold out book tour as he would sit there and read out sections of you know uh, great expectations or tale of two cities or whatever it was and at the end he would sign books and sell books and the reason for this was uh, modern day copyright laws didn't exist. Charles Dickens knew his books were popular in America, but he wasn't earning a penny from this. Unscrupulous publishers, well, I mean, they weren't necessarily unscrupulous because the rules just didn't apply at the time. But yes, you, you, you heard that right. These people would literally reprint one of his books and in no way think to give him any of the money for it. Because why would you? But if he was doing a talk to you know, sometimes thousands of people and get people really excited about the, I don't know, the new edition of, of Christmas Carol, you could actually, Charles Dickens could actually sell some and make some damn money out of it. I just love that story, but it does show you the harsh fiscal realities of the, the publishing world. Because this is where I'm going to sort of insert me and start talking to you about Echoes, all right? So, Jem Daduchu, I would describe myself as being on the edges of publishing. Are you listening right now to a published writer? The answer is yes. I have had seven history books published through Ambly Publishing, but I've also written two historical novels. One is called Silent Crossroads, and that came out, give or take, two years ago. And the other one is called Echoes, which is coming out. Well, it depends when you're listening to this podcast. It's either about to come out or, hey, you can go on to the interweb and buy one now. But the thing is, my historical novels are self-published, which is why I describe myself on, on the fringes. And I'll come into why that is in a moment. And I'll also tell you a little bit about Echoes as well. But what I wanted to point out to you is there are basically two big chunks of the publishing world. There's fiction, that's Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, and then there's non-fiction, which I've always thought is a rather clunky word for what is in essence history books. I mean, yes, it could be other educational books as well. It could be a book on, I guess, geography or physics or whatever, but by far and away the biggest chunk of non-fiction is history. So why don't we just call that history? After all, 
when it comes to fiction, you don't just go, can I have a fiction book? It's like crime drama, fantasy. There are all these sort of sections that you can go to. So yes, but if you want to sort of split it down, it's either made up stuff or stuff that happened uh, and, you know, it's, it's a sort of factual book, as it were. If you're working in nonfiction, even if you're a big seller, a big draw. Now, I've been lucky enough to meet the likes of uh, Dr. Nina Ramirez or Tom Holland. Uh, you know, th these are people which when they sell nonfiction books, history books, they are bestsellers. They're on the Times bestsellers list. Their books get translated into other languages. They sell around the world. And yet I, I'm not privy to their bank accounts, but I can do the basic maths. I'm pretty sure that that gets them a new shiny car. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it probably pays the mortgage for a year, but they don't produce a book every year. It takes time to do the research. And so they might produce a book every other year, maybe every three years. So it simply doesn't cover the bills. You know, it, it might cover the base. It might buy you something nice, but then you've got to buy groceries and shopping every week, don't you? So you know, by necessity, there has to be a second job. Obviously, in the world of history, you get more credibility if you happen to be, let's say, a professor of Anglo-Saxon studies at uh, you know, Christchurch College, Cambridge or something like that. Uh, then, you know, that's going to help you sell your book in the first place. But uh, yeah, the interesting thing is that when you look at the modern publishing world, it, it, it's kind of in disarray, but also uh, writers themselves more often than you'd think, have another job. Now, there are exceptions, and this is where I can mention the likes of J.K. Rowling and R.R. Martin, because the reality is, with books nowadays, what all authors are secretly hoping for, even though they might never admit it you know, in an interview, is they want their book to evolve. The book is always the starting place, the opening point. J.K. Rowling, I'm so pleased that she made the success that she did. You know, let's strip away all the ancillary stuff. Just read the the original books, the Harry Potter seven book series. I would argue it's one of the greatest children's stories ever. You know, she genuinely knew where this was all going to go. So often we get these great conceits, great ideas, and they fizzle out at the end because they actually written themselves into a corner. She clearly always knew where it was going to go. Well done her. And she deserves the success she did, she had. And it's worth remembering you know, when she first started writing the first book, you know, she was broke. You know, she was having to go to a coffee shop because she couldn't afford to keep the, the heating on in her house. She was a, a single mum. You know, this is a woman who absolutely understands the value of money. And I'm so pleased for her success. But even she has admitted that she never had any any idea that her books would blow up the way they did because it's kind of unprecedented in history. Almost, you know, you get someone like J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, you know, Lord of the Rings is one of the biggest selling books in history. And yet, you know, his day job was indeed a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature, um, you know, uh, and, and so he had a day job and he, he wasn't in it for the books. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He was in it for all kinds of other things. Let's not go there. This is not going to turn into a biography of Tolkien. An awful lot of writers didn't just sit there writing. There are a few like that, but there are far more that aren't. And when you look at something like the Man Booker Prize, just look at the numbers. These are books that have sold hundreds of copies. Maybe they've tipped over into a couple of thousand copies. But then they get onto the shortlist of something as prestigious as the Booker Prize. Then they become a, a bestseller and then they start selling tens of thousands of, of units and copies. And the reason for this is I have been lucky enough, the two largest book fairs, two largest shows in the publishing industry, there's one in Germany and there's one in London. And I've been to the London Book Fair, the second largest publishing show in the world. I, I went there four or five times in a row because of my day job. And also once because of, because of my writing. Uh, and all you have to do is walk through the door of that place, which now takes up a, you know, pretty much the entire of Olympia in London. And you see the problem with publishing. Every year, there aren't dozens of books. There aren't hundreds of books. There are literally thousands of books released. The vast majority of these will go on to sell under 500 copies and end up being in a bargain bin. That's just the harsh reality of it. There are peaks even, there, there's even uh, weirdly, I know this is weird, but there's fashionable bits of history. You, you know, you, you will probably get published if you want to write about the Tudors or the Romans or World War II. And at the moment, I guess World War I as well is quite hot. But the English Civil War, I know it's sort of people increasingly calling it other things, but let's just stick with that. The English Civil War is a fascinating period, but it just doesn't capture the public imagination. Publishers know that and just it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's very hard to get books on that. It's very easy to get books on other areas, for example. So if you are a non-fiction writer like myself, that's a little easier to get into because if, you know, not many people have the knowledge to write an entire book on a chunk of history. Uh, and so therefore I was able to approach Amberley Publishing without the use of a literary agent who is the kind of the gatekeeper to the fiction world. 
And as I said, there are thousands of these books. And on top of that, because of the, the, the internet, these publishers would be getting tens of thousands of manuscripts or ideas of manuscripts. They need a gatekeeper in the fiction world. But in the non-fiction world, you know, the publishers can call, talk directly to the writers. And so what's happened is I've gone to my publishers, my, my publisher and said, I've got an idea for a book. And most more often than not, they'll turn around and go, yeah, do that. I mean, it has to go jump through some hoops. You have to prove the, the case, as it were. But occasionally they come to me and say, can you do this? Right now I'm actually writing one. I'm so not going into it now. You know, maybe I'll do one later on in the year. It is relevant to Neon. Um, but, you know, they came to me with an idea because they thought I was the writer that could probably do it justice. To give you an idea, a few years ago, I had uh, a, basically a call from them going, could you do, they've got a series, Ambly Publishing has X in 100 facts. So I've done the Romans in 100 facts, the British Empire in 100 facts, the American presidents in 100 facts. And they basically emailed me at the beginning of uh, 2015 and said, hey, it's the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo this year. Could you do the Battle of Waterloo in 100 facts? And I went, yeah, I could. But, you know, fact number 67 is probably going to be about boots. I think we need to do something broader than that. And they went, OK, could you do the Napoleonic Wars in 100 facts? Yes, I said. And they then said, and this is weird when you think about history, it goes, well, look, this needs to be out, absolutely has to be out in time for the commemoration of the Battle of Waterloo. There's no point doing it three months after that, that it will have gone out of the, of the consciousness. But leading up to it, we can sell some books. So, Jem, you need to do a fast turnaround. And that's kind of how it works in the publishing world right now. Everybody's sort of hustling. We are sort of in the world still of penny dreadfuls and Pulp Fiction. The argument on TV and to the government why there's no VAT on books is because they're art. Actually, publishers share far more in common with Unilever and Purcell and likes of that. It's all about unit sales. To be blunt to hell with the art, we need to shift copies because we have to pay our own bills. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the truth behind it all. So then we come to the world of fiction and literary agents. So after having, at that point, five history books published and having got my editor, you know, so professional editor who's edited all my history books, editing this manuscript of this, of the of my first historical novel, I spent 18 months plus trying to get the attention of literary agents. But I was aware that they, each one, these are small companies and they probably get more than 2,000 inquiries a year. They're just swamped. So therefore trying to get their attention is super, super hard. But because of my sales skills, because, uh, you know, I've got a bit of a pedigree, I was able to literally sit down and have face to face meetings with three of them. And I had in-depth email conversations backwards and forwards with uh, a couple of others. But the vast majority just get bounced back. You get these horrible standard emails, which because the likes of J.K. Rowling and other famous writers have published their rejection letters, the literary agents are now terrified of this. So at least sort of 20 years ago, if you got rejected, you'd be given some notes. It's like, well, we think the central character is too enigmatic. You need to delve deeper into that character. And then we might consider it again. OK, at least I know. Now it's all, all the, the standard letters are the same, basically saying, you know, thanks very much. It, you know, it's good. Oh, great. Wonderful. But it's just not for us. OK, that gives me nothing to work on, which is very frustrating. But when I sat down with these literary agents, you know, again, with my sales skills, they would raise objections and I would be tempted to handle them. But 
They just don't know. Everybody is looking for the next Game of Thrones or the next Lord of the Rings or whatever, because these things are marketable beyond books. As I said earlier, J.K. Rowling, when you look at the initial sales of the very first Harry Potter book, did okay, did fine. I'm sure, you know, from, from her point of view, it might have um, kept the walls from the door, might have paid, paid the mortgage for most of the year. Okay, well done. Second book, sold a bit better. Okay, now maybe I can start thinking about quitting the job, day job. Third book, now I can quit the day job. But I, I believe by the time you get to the Goblet um, of Fire, the fourth Harry Potter book, now we're, there, now we're into movie territory. And that's how she ended up becoming, you know, a, a multimillionaire hundreds of times over. OK, there's no way you would expect that to happen. But it's because Harry Potter, the books have become the movies without one or the other. Without the movies, the books would be selling well but they wouldn't be the same sensation. And, and pure and simply, more people have seen the movies than have read the books. It's just always going to work that way. And then it leads to the merchandise. And every time you see a t-shirt with Hufflepuff on, she gets a cut of that. Every Harry Potter action figure, every wand, etc., she gets a little cut of that. That all comes from the book. And by now, although yes, of course, the books came first, the books now really are one of the many ancillary brands to the movie empire. Okay, now I'm, I'm, that's not a bad thing, but it shows you how really, you know, R.R. Martin, he sold well before we get Game of Thrones, the TV series. But again, look at the sales numbers. That's what shoots it through the roof. Dan Brown did enough to eventually quit his teaching job, but it wasn't until I believe his fifth book, it might have been his sixth book, was Da Vinci Code, and that became a publishing sensation. And then all his other books started selling as well. Now, going back to me, I've written seven books, and I'm now about to have my third self-published book. I know I said two historical novels. There's one self-published uh, history book as well. Let's just not go there. I've done the maths. I have written uh, more than three quarters of a million words. And yet... I earn about a thousand pounds a year from all this. So I pay for, I don't know, family self-catering cottage somewhere in the Cotswolds for a week. I basically pay for a, a modest family holiday in the summer. And that's it. What I've done is I've monetized my hobby. I haven't turned it into a career. And let's face it, you're listening to this podcast. You're, you're listening to that for free as well. So, you know, I'd like you to, to think about the podcast and think, well, you know, could, could I, if you like this, you'll probably like my books. I've heard lots of people say that, you know, even the history books are kind of chatty. They're, they're kind of, you know, it's like sitting in a pub talking to a mate about history. Thank you very much for that. That's kind of what I'm aiming for. Although I do fact check a lot more in the books than I do in a podcast. Sorry about that, guys. But yes, going back to the first time with the literary agents. So I tried really hard with them. And, you know, the pushbacks I got were because they just, they're so busy that unless they look at it and they know it's going to be a huge hit, they don't know for sure. And so my first one, I got so fed up of getting so close, so close, so close. And that's just to get the literary agent. The literary agents then have to tout the book to the actual publishers. And knowing London Book Fair and knowing the thousands of books there, it's like, ugh. 
But fortunately, with the rise of the internet, and this is where I can link it back to the world of sort of like the history of how we've consumed information, how we store information, it strikes a chord of disgust every time you read in a history book about a great upheaval in a great city that leads to the burning of a library or the deliberate desecration of books being thrown into a river by a, river by a Mongol horde or whatever it may be. It's like, wow, there was information there that's been lost forever. Because up until the 2000s, there were so many pieces of information out there that were literally stored in books. You know, those really flammable, very sensitive to water chunks of information. But now with the internet, you know, I don't think we're ever going to lose information again. In fact, the argument at the moment is too much information. People have too much access to information without being open and honest about it. But one good thing about the internet is it means that if we can digitize some of these manuscripts, some manuscripts haven't even been translated yet. Um, sometimes during the digitization process of being put under UV lights, people have realized that because books and vellum were so expensive, people have literally in the past scraped off the original page and written over it. And we're able to recapture these hidden pages. So the Internet is a marvelous tool for information. Uh, you know, obviously all tools can be used as weapons as well. But now self-publishing is an option. 20 years ago, it really wasn't. You know, then it was you know, basically sort of ego publishing where you'd go to one of these publishers. You'd probably be paid a couple of thousand. You yourself have to pay a couple of thousand pounds. They give you 500 books. You maybe sell 400 of those to your mates and you made... I don't know, you know, you probably lost overall in terms of, of budget, okay? But nowadays with the likes of CreateSpace or Kindle Direct Publishing on Amazon, it's as simple as uploading a, basically a PDF file with a, with a cover. Now, of course, that means there's a lot of garbage on there. And what I've done with my books is they are professionally edited. They're edited by the same person who does my history books. And the covers are done by Greenwich Design, a real design agency who are kind enough to donate me their time for free because basically the guy who owns the company, um, he's kind of friend of a friend and he read my first historical novel and went, this is great. Can we do the front cover for you? Thank you so much, Simon. Greenwich Design plug there. Great guys. Um, and they've done the same again with this one. And to be honest, because I'm more in control, I get to have more fun with this book, these books than I do with any of the other ones. So look, what is Echoes after all this? Let's get down to brass tacks because it absolutely is history and it absolutely is uh, something that you can interact with basically right now. So Echoes is picking up a, a weird gap I've noticed in the market. So uh, with my first book, Silent Crossroads, uh, the basic blurb for that is Silent Crossroads is the story of the only British soldier who fought in both world wars for both sides. This is a British soldier who in World War I starts fighting for the British and flips over to the German side and then spends the interwar years in Germany with his new wife. So what that is, of course, there's loads of books and stories and movies about World War I and World War II, but this shows things from a different perspective. And that's what I want to do with my, his, uh, with my historical novels. I want to show stuff that you think you know about, but showing it in a slightly different way. So this takes you from a young 17-year-old, sort of never even faced combat before, to a grizzled veteran in 1945, who is quite frankly by then sick of war and hard to justify 
anything that's gone on in his life. So if that sounds like an interesting one, it's look, it's got lots of battle action in it. It's a war drama. It's a love drama. I mean, you know, if you've got a man who's willing to give up on his nation for the love of a woman, for heaven's sakes. It's also a family drama because, you know, we're taking a person through nearly 30 years of their life. You sort of see them sort of married and sort of interacting with their German in-laws and things like that. So if that sounds like a good meaty drama, think something like a cross between The English Patient and The Sullivans. If you remember that, as uh, that that story from Australia, that soap opera from the, uh, from then, and also let's say Saving Private Ryan as well. What Echoes is about is it's about the Vietnam War. It's the story of Tom Moretti, and in the very first chapter, Tom. You see him in the jungles of Vietnam in 1968. And then in the second chapter, you see Tom today as an old man. And if you like, that's something I've noticed with pretty much all war stories. Going back to Saving Private Ryan, yes, the first three minutes is an old man. And the last two minutes is an old man. But in the two and a half hours in the middle, it's all World War II. But if you think of... All Quiet on the Western Front, or Platoon, or pretty much any of the you know powerful stories about war, it's always then. It's always during the war. You don't tend to see what happened next. I mean, even if you're looking at something like Born on the Fourth of July, it's about uh, that man, you know, yes, in the war, then getting wounded, uh, but then you know it's, it's still set, if you like, in the '60s and early '70s. It isn't sort of him now today. But anyway, so what we've got is sort of this this twisting, turning story, you know, keeps flipping back. We see the young Tom, you know, sort of like just trying to survive his way through a tour of duty in Vietnam. But then you see Tom today and how the actions of the young man still haunt a man 50 years on. And Tom basically decides to go back to Vietnam to confront his ghosts. I think you can see why the book is called Echoes, yes? But the twist to the tale is he basically ends up having to go with a very disgruntled and really doesn't want to be their granddaughter who is you know, in her early 20s. So probably like some of the listeners here uh, in on Neon, you probably can't relate to your grandparents' experiences and you might well have never been anywhere near a combat zone. But your grandparents are kind of cuddly and lovely, but you kind of want to keep them at arm's length. And do you really want to know that your grandfather killed somebody? That your grandfather was involved in a war that has subsequently been deemed morally bankrupt? And can you forgive that man for what happened to him? And so, yes, you get some visceral sort of action scenes. You know, think something like Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or Apocalypse Now, but also you get the contemplation of a man in the autumn of his years thinking, you know, can I be forgiven? Should I be forgiven? And you, as the reader, gets to think about, you know, these sort of harder choices. What does a country do to the young men it asks, and women, it asks to go into combat situations? So, yeah, if that sounds interesting, that's what Echoes is ultimately about, but there's an added layer to it. Historical fiction, because I've read a bit, uh, it can vary wildly in quality. I think one of the times is people do the research and they, because they put so much research 
into the heart and soul into that. They really want to get it all onto the onto the page and it becomes a history book. That's not it. Yes, it's basically historically accurate. Yes, um, you know, I, I mentioned certain things that I've done the research on, but it's story first. OK, this this is, you know, uh, the amount of times I've read in historical fiction where people have stopped and go, well, in May of, you know, 1945, that's when we or, you know, Germany surrendered. And it's like nobody talks that way. So, you know, there is banter of, of, of soldiers. And if you sometimes think, well, that's the wrong way of looking at it. But yeah, but that's realistic to how people thought in 1968, for example. But the other thing is, and something that I'm mentally proud of, is I've done some research with veterans. Um, I'm going to protect their identities, but I've sat down and literally talked to veterans of World War. Oh, sorry, not World War. Well, I mean, I have spoken to veterans of World War II, but I've spoken to veterans of the Vietnam War, and you know, real events are actually in the book. I will give you one, for example, because it's in the very opening scene. So. Tom is watching the man on point in the jungle. The point man is the guy at the front of the of the platoon that is searching and doing a a, tour, a surveillance tour, a lerp or larp uh, through um, through jungle. And suddenly, out of a bush, a Viet Cong fighter jumps out and basically unloads an entire clip of AK forty seven high velocity bullets into this man's chest, and then dives into a bush again. It's all happened so fast that the soldiers can't even react. And so Tom runs over to the dead man at the front and turns him over, and the man lets out a huge groan. And every single bullet either missed the man or hit the belts of ammunition that were across his chest, acting at that moment in time as bulletproof armor. That happened. It didn't happen to my veteran I was talking to, but the veteran, if you like, at that moment was Tom, watching it, turning the man over and being gobsmacked that the man was alive, surviving that. So, there are moments in this book which I am desperate to capture because we're now at the stage where the veterans of Vietnam are in their 70s. You know, they're only going to start dying out, unfortunately. So if even if you aren't interested in war, it's interesting to talk about how war affects generations and nations as a whole. And it's worthwhile being talking a lot about Tom. This is also a story about self-discovery of the granddaughter as well. I am painfully aware of the Bechdel test and there's no way around it. You know, platoons in Vietnam were a whole bunch of guys. So there's lots of scenes of guys talking, but I am desperate to show, you know, women are more than 50 percent, statistically just over 50 percent of births are female um, in society. So how can I not include that? So we got conversations between the granddaughter and her mother, who is the daughter of Tom. And the tensions there in the family. And also, as she, a, a woman, a young woman who's never even been out of the United States before, as she steps out into the world and starts seeing how the rest of the world lives and how some of her expectations were woefully naive, but also how this journey also matures her in ways she hadn't in initially uh, anticipated either, then yes, this is uh, a journey of discovery for both generations as they go around Vietnam. So look, guys, 
that's the best I can do in terms of explaining why I write historical fiction. Okay, I hope I've engaged with you. I hope you you go out and get a copy. Um, you know, look, it depends where you're buying it in the world, but the Kindle edition of Echoes is gonna be about a dollar a pound it really isn't a lot of money but yes because of the the miracles of the interweb um you can actually get a softback cover copy as well so you can actually get a physical copy and there's always a thrill holding a copy of a book that you've written i'm not going to lie about that so of course you can go to patreon anyway and support neon uh, by just doing patreon.com forward slash neon podcast but on this one occasion i'm saying please please do look at the book and if you if you do uh, like the book the other thing you can do if you know you can do a second wave of helping gem out and i would really appreciate it by posting a review you know i i know that look if you look at silent crossroads it's got 11 four or five star reviews on amazon and i thank the people for that but i know because you know you get the the booking numbers i know that you know scores of people i certainly haven't sold hundreds of copies but scores of people have bought copies of that but only a few have decided to write a review but please please if you know when you're talking about self-published individuals you're having to do all the marketing and hustle on your own you don't have the grunt of a publishing company behind you so no matter who you're reading in terms of self-published works i really encourage you to to support them fully um, and if you can do that for echoes that would be great so that's me that's gem i've managed to do a plug there for my new book but also i've taken you on a journey from the very beginnings of writing to the modern internet world of publishing that's not bad for less than an hour is it come on so thanks very much for listening more good podcasty goodness coming to a podcast app near you soon as i walked supposed golden path I was confronted by a mysterious specter he pointed to the but before you go people it's always worth saying that yes we have the patreon page but we're doing something new with it now you can listen to our episodes without the advert so if you just want to get into a neon maybe you should go along and subscribe to us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash neon podcast. We've made that easy. It'd be great to hear from you over on that channel. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 